Good morning. How you doing? We had a great morning yesterday morning from 8 in the morning till 1 o'clock at our No Regrets Men's Conference. A number of our men up here behind me were there and a number of you were there as well. I hope you benefited greatly from it. I did. That's the third year we've, we've hosted that and live streamed. It was, a, it was a wonderful day. And now we're coming in today. We're going to look at Psalm 51 this morning. Uh, so if you need a Bible, our ushers will come down and bring those. Go ahead and raise your hand. Uh, we'd love to have you have God's Word in your hand, not only now, but if you need uh, to keep it as well and take it home. Uh, raise your hand and you can get one of those. Psalm 51, the Lord is our joy. This psalm is one of seven penitential psalms, not a word we use very often, uh, but when I hear that word penitent, I think of Indiana Jones. I don't know if anybody can remember the scene, but in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, we hear this word mentioned, and I'll highlight it for you. So Indiana Jones, played by Harrison Ford, uh, teaming up with his father, played by Sean Connery, and their quest in this movie is to find the Holy Grail. And so they've got this book of clues that they've been using to find the location and get to the Holy Grail. And so they get to this place, this cave with a, with a tunnel that leads to another cavern where the Grail is. But of course the bad guys are there. And the bad guys have the guns and so they're in charge. And the bad guys want Indiana Jones to go get it because there's lots of tests he has to pass along the way. So in order to encourage him to do that, they shoot his father, Sean Connery. So Sean Connery's there laying on the cave floor uh, with a gunshot in his stomach and Indiana Jones has to not only go get the grail, but fill it with the holy water to bring it back to heal his dad. It's a story, it's not real, but that's how it's set up there. So he's got this book of clues and he's walking down this passageway and he's reading these out loud to himself and his father is back in the cave, laying on the cave floor, reciting them as well and he's saying, only the penitent man will pass. The penitent man. The penitent man. He's trying to figure out what does this mean? What do I need to do uh, to pass the challenge here? Penitent man, the penitent man. And he says, the penitent man is, is humble before God. Kneel. And he kneels quickly just before the saw blade comes out and almost cuts his head off and he rolls forward and passes the first test. And that picture that we have there of a humble person, humble before God, is what we have here in this passage and that's given to us by David. This personal reflection on his own life. He's humble, he's sorrowful for his sins, and, and David is, is personally sharing about what's happened to him. And if you were, are in Bethel Kids a couple weeks ago, Allison was telling me this week that you studied Psalm 51, so you know a little bit of the background, uh, kids here as well, that it's about David and David uh, having Uriah killed in a battle as all the army pulls back and Uriah's left alone, and then his adultery with Bathsheba, and then the confrontation that Nathan has with him, if you look back to 2 Samuel 11 through 12, you can read about it. Uh, but David is reflecting on that, reflecting back on it. And so David's really just pouring his, his heart out here about what God has taught him. And we really need to get this, the spirit of this psalm as, as, spells, as well as the words and what David has experienced here and what God has showed him. Probably about 20 years ago, I heard this phrase in a class that I was taking. It's really stuck with me, and it kind of summarizes what this psalm says. And we can all recite this to ourselves. It goes like this. I am more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe, but Christ is a far greater Savior than I ever dared imagine. 
Amen. I am more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe, but Christ is a far greater savior than I ever dared imagine. And that's what David is, is pouring out to us in this psalm, this song. And what I wanna do this morning is a, a good way to, to learn from scripture is to ask it questions. And I wanna go through four questions that kinda of highlight what David is saying here, what God has, has taught him. And the first question we wanna ask is this, what does the psalm teach us about God? His mercy is more. Let's look, look first just at verse one. <clears throat> David writes this, have mercy on me, O God, and according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. A few weeks ago, I started to memorize the psalm. We haven't gotten all the way through it, maybe seven verses or so, but when I was reciting it in my mind, those first two words, probably the most critical words in the whole psalm, have mercy, stuck out to me. Because I was, as I was saying those and remembering those, I'm thinking, God, that's the only way that we can come into your presence, is if you have mercy on us. Because we deserve, we deserve hell, we deserve the wrath of God, but he, instead he shows his penitent children mercy. It's just amazing, and David is laying this out in the psalm. And he highlights here a number of words. First of all, the word mercy, it's, it's favor. It's unmerited, undeserved goodness. I deserve wrath, we deserve wrath, but we get mercy. As I was studying for the psalm, one of the commentators says that the law of Moses told that there was no forgiveness provided for the sins that David committed. There was no sacrifice from a murder, there was no sacrifice for adultery that would absolve him at that time for his sins. And that's, that's where we are at in all of our sins. There's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor. But sometimes we try to, we try to be good enough. We live as if we live the Christian life by works, not by grace through faith. Heard this illustration a long time ago and it's really stuck with me. Imagine if we just committed three sins a day. Wouldn't that be amazing? Three sins in an hour maybe, but three sins a day. So I said one bad word each day, I thought a bad thought, I did one bad act. So that's all the sins I committed in a day. So if we added those up, my sins would be about 1,000 a year. Over a lifetime, that would be around 75,000 if I lived to the average age of 75. Is 75,000 sins good enough? Is only committing one sin in your lifetime good enough? No. God says be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There is no way in God's green earth that we can, we can earn God's favor by being good enough. And so he shows us mercy. He also shows us his committed love, or it says here is his steadfast love. This is, this is hesed, the Hebrew word for, for steadfast love. It's God's covenant love for his children. It's his unchangeable love that he gives to us in spite of what we do. Not because of what we do, in spite of what we do. And I think we really misunderstand love today in our culture. I think our pro one of our problems today is we equate love with approval, we define love as approval. And people will tell you, well, you don't love me because you're not approving of what I do. And that's not love at all. God loves us despite what we do. And we shouldn't ignore our sins. The answer isn't to ignore our sins or to rationalize our sins. It's to face them. But not only that, face God's mercy. <clears throat> James Montgomery Boyce says it this way. 
the very essence of God, and the most important things that sinners can ever know about him is that he is merciful. In fact, that's his name. That's what he calls himself. Uh, In Exodus, Moses was asking God to show him his glory, and God said, I can't show you my glory, you can't stand it, but I can have my goodness pass before you, and I can tell you my name. And God said his name is this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's his name, that's his nature, that's who he is. He is merciful. He's also compassionate, another word in this verse. This is God's tender warmth for us. And it's the same word that's used in the story of Joseph. If you remember Joseph in Genesis, his 10 older brothers were were great brothers, loving brothers. They sent him off into slavery. It was a good thing for him, built character, right? They sold him off into slavery. He was a slave for a number of years in prison, finally rose to second in command in Egypt. And as there is a famine in the land after seven years of plenty, His brothers come to him not knowing that it's Joseph and they come to him asking for food. And when Joseph sees them, now think about this, this is brothers that uh, at least a dozen or more years ago sold him into slavery. He has compassion for him. He has tender warmth for his brothers. And Joseph there is a type of Jesus Christ. We have, in essence, sold Jesus into slavery not only sold Jesus into slavery with our sins, but murdered him on a cross so that we could have what we want. And yet he still loves us. Yet he still has this compassion for us. That's God's heart for us. So I hope you get God's heart, his nature, his character, because we have to start there, as David does. Because if we start with ourselves, we're overwhelmed with our sinfulness. But if we start with God's mercy, we have hope. Second question is this, what does this psalm teach about you and me? Well, like Jeremiah says, it teaches us that our hearts are deceitful and desperately sick. Our hearts are deceitful and desperately sick. We're more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe. And we each need to acknowledge the sinful nature that we have. And we're not better than we thought, we're worse off than we thought in God's eyes and in our own eyes as well. Let's look at verses two through four and then we'll take a a dig into them. David says this in verse two. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David understands here that, that first and finally our sins are against God. Yes, we sin against other people, but first and foremost, our sins are against God. And he uses a number of different words to describe that sin. First of all, he describes it as transgression. Transgression is crossing a forbidden boundary, is going to a place that we shouldn't have gone. And it's it's curious, I was reading a a commentary the other week, and this this gentleman who wrote this book uh, went and met with a, a shepherd. And he asked the shepherd, what's your most important tool in shepherding? And he thought, well, maybe he'll say his rod or his staff or maybe the dogs that he uses to help keep the sheep corralled. But he said, my most important tool is the fence because sheep are are stupid, kind of like we are. We all like sheep have gone astray. And we need a fence. We need a, a boundary to know what's right and what's wrong. 
to save us from ourselves. And so transgression is crossing that boundary. He also uses the word iniquity. And if you've ever been to an amusement park and looked at an amusement park mirror, you understand what this is. You, iniquity is that warp that you see that distorts our image when you look in that mirror. And that warp and distortion is our, our nature. We have a sin nature now, and we're warped. Iniquity causes us to not be what we're intended to be. Another word he uses is, is rebellion, that willful, responsible refusal of God's way. You may have heard this illustration before. Uh, rebellion is really missing the mark. We shoot the arrow, but we can never hit the target of perfection. We, we throw the ax, and we can never hit the target because we're rebellious people. And then the final word he uses in verse four is evil. And it reminds us of the story of Joseph again, when Joseph is in the house of the captain of the guard, and uh, the captain of the guard's wife is tempting Joseph, and Joseph says this, how can I then do this great wickedness, how can I do this evil and sin against God? And the thief on the cross next to Jesus said the same thing. He said, we're suffering justly, for we're receiving the due reward for our deeds, but he has done nothing wrong. David knew in his heart he was rebellious. He crossed the boundaries that God had set up. He was willfully doing evil. But as a result of the confrontation with David, God taught him that his mercy is more, even though his sin was so wicked it couldn't be forgiven by any sacrifices. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. I am more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe. But God is able to forgive us. And how does David describe what God does with our sin? What does God do with our sin? The third question. God wipes away the penitent person's sin. God does it. So I need to depend on his forgiveness. I need pardon for sin, and I need purity of heart. And David talks about both of those things. And David gives us a word picture here, and his word picture is really that sin is a spot on us, a spot that we can't get out. I can relate to spots, spots on my clothing. I come by honestly spilling on myself. We would go out to dinner with my mom and dad, invariably my dad would spill ketchup or something on his shirt, and I've inherited that tendency. In fact, yesterday I was sitting at the men's conference, I was looking at my shoe. I have a ketchup stain on my shoe. Imagine how someone could have that happen. I was so accurate that I stained my shoe and not just my shirt. And that's the picture here. Sin is a mark that we can't get out. But God blots it out. He can erase it. God launders the infection, the stain that gets down so deep. You know when you have those stains in clothing that get so deep onto the fibers that you can't get them out? There's a stain in our heart, in our nature, and God can get that out. He can wash that away. He can launder it. Because it resides in me from conception. This is an important point just to sidelight. Verse 5 says this. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. And that's kind of a confusing verse until you understand what he's actually trying to say. Let me quote one commentator, how he describes it. He said, David is not casting any doubt on the morality of the sexual aspect of procreation. He's saying that's good, that's not what he's talking about. But tracking sinfulness back to the earliest existence of a moral being. 
David traces back the presence of sin first to the moment of birth and then beyond that to the moment of conception. These verses are important evidences in any discussion of abortion. The infant at birth and the fetus at conception is a moral and personal being. When we're conceived, we are automatically moral and we automatically have that sin nature because we inherit that nature from Adam and Eve. We're not sinners because we sin, we sin because we're sinners because we have that nature, because we can do nothing else but sin. But God cleanses us, he purifies us. In the Old Testament, when a person had a certain kind of defilement, whatever it might be, including things like leprosy, they were separated from the people of God. They couldn't go to the temple and worship. They couldn't be with other Israelites. They had to be purified, and often they had to take themselves to the temple, to the priests, for the priests to examine them to ensure that they were clean so they could again go into the temple and worship with other believers. But God purges that from us. He, he rids us of that stain so we can be in his presence once again. And he also does a work in our hearts. Let's look at verses seven through 12. <clears throat> he says this, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. <coughs> Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. God rids us of our sin, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But he also does a work in our hearts. He no longer hides his face from us. And you can see it, you can see it even in the, in the youngest child. When they've done something wrong, they won't look at you in the eyes because your gaze reminds them that they've done something wrong. And David is saying, Lord, please look at me again. Don't hide your face because I need you. I need you and I need your love. He also creates and renews our hearts. He purifies us. He makes us whole again in our heart and our soul. He restores us and he upholds us. He brings joy and he sustains us. <clears throat> Peter summarizes it very well. First Peter 5.10, he says this. It's kind of like he's looking at Psalm 51 and then he's writing in his own words. He says, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, establish, and strengthen you. Jesus himself will do that in my heart. He will do that in your heart. And not only forgive you, but he'll restore to you the joy of your salvation. And that's the fourth question. How do we respond? We rejoice. And that's the spirit of the psalm. I am more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe, but Christ is a far greater savior than I could ever dare imagine. That's the spirit of the psalm. It says really well in Titus, Titus 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. 
God gives us joy and gladness. Verse eight, I think we already read it. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Verse 13, then what do we do? Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. We tell others about what God has done in us. I love how John Newton says that John Newton, who was a slave trader in the 1700s, radically saved at the end of his life as he's reflecting, he's written Amazing Grace, he says this, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. One of the speakers yesterday said this, it stuck with me. He said, the brokenness of the messenger does not invalidate the power of the message. We're all broken as Christians, broken in our sin, but that doesn't invalidate. In fact, that confirms what God does. If he can redeem and restore a broken person like me, he can do that for anyone. And so we need to tell that testimony to other people. Next praise, verses 14 and 15. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O my God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Someone said this, we are living illustrations of the, fa- of the fact that God fathers with sinners. Only as such can we, can we speak to others. God bothers with me. He doesn't get impatient with me after seven or 70 or 700 or 7,000 or even seven million sins. He still bothers with us because our forgiveness and our restoration goes back to praise and glory to him. And then also our response should be humility. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. People often talk about accountability today, but if you're accountable but not humble, then you're not accountable. If someone comes to you like Nathan did to David and confronts you with your sin and you don't listen, you don't respond humbly, then God isn't working in you. But if you have that broken and contrite heart, that's part of God's work in you. God can show you that he's working in you by your response to others uh, in confronting you in your sin or you realizing your sin yourself. And finally, David ends with the fact that this is, this is a community project. Verses 18 and 19. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. David is talking about the worship of God's people and he's saying forgiveness and mercy is a community project. God does that with us together. We need to be here. We need to gather with other believers in small groups and, and large groups to celebrate what he's done in our lives, to encourage one another, to pray for one another because mercy is is for all of us. If you were at the conference yesterday, uh, man, you probably remember this illustration. Our our last speaker uh, was Ricky Jenkins, and you have to understand this illustration by understanding who he is if you didn't see him. Uh, Ricky Jenkins is this preacher, this big black preacher from Mississippi, and so he starts to talk about his favorite game show, and you're trying to think, well, what's his favorite game show? He says, well, it's on PBS, it's not really a game show, but it's Antiques Roadshow. And so he starts to talk about Antiques Roadshow, and you have to understand this is a live stream coming from Milwaukee, and this guy is originally from Mississippi, but he says, 
I was watching this antiques roadshow once at Bonanzaville in West Fargo, North Dakota. And so he talk, starts to talk about this man, antiques roadshow, he describes it as people finding stuff in their attics or their basement or their garage or their barn. And they bring it in and uh, snooty British people tell them about it and tell them how much it's worth. And so this guy brings this Rolex watch in that he's had for 50 years. And he's kept it in a box in his attic and he brings it and the snooty British person starts to tell him about it, its background, its provenance, where it was made, all these different things. And then he tells this man, well, always at the end they tell you how much it's worth. He says, well at auction, this Rolex watch would probably be worth $700,000. And he shows a picture on the screen, this man has fallen over. He's just in shock that this watch that he's had for 50 years is worth $700,000. And his point was this, he didn't know the treasure he had because he didn't take it out of the box. We have this treasure of mercy and we don't realize it. We don't take it out. We don't rejoice in it. We don't thank God for it because we kept, keep it locked away in a box instead of rejoicing in it and thanking God for all that it is for us in Christ. Our one thing is a, a different one thing. Uh, we're gonna sing this one thing. One thing is an opening verse from a song called His Mercy Is More. You can see it on the screen. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins they are many, his mercy is more. And Anthony has allowed me to come up and sing. He offered me a solo a few months ago, so. <clears throat> but my voice is not good, so I'm gonna sing with the professionals here. But we're gonna sing this through twice. Please stand with us. Let's sing this together. Praise the Lord, His mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new every morn, our sins they are many, His mercy is more. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm overwhelmed by your mercy. It's undeserved, unearned, unmerited. In spite of me, you show it to me. And Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. Lord, help us to continue to do that in spite of our sin, in spite of all that we do, Lord. You still love us. We thank you for that, Lord. And we praise you for that in your name, amen.